Hey guys, I'm Avni. And I'm Diva. And welcome back to Positionality. Where recently, both of us have been noticing a lot of stuff in the news about the Biden administration's actions and inaction in the Middle East. So when Biden was first beginning his campaign, one of his main priorities that he outlined was wanting to get out of the conflicts in Afghanistan and in the Middle East, specifically in Iraq. But recently, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. outlined some goals towards Iraq, which seemed to be suggesting the opposite. Yeah, I heard that the U.S. is actually planning to find ways to keep troops in Iraq and make sure that the forever war, which Biden promised to end, doesn't end in the near future. And we see a lot of nationalistic stories or news articles that essentially propagate this idea that these things are good, these actions are morally valid because we are fighting a war against terrorism and protecting our country. But it's almost as if with every single war that we start in the Middle East, we never end, which means we never see the consequences or consider the consequences that our actions in warfare have on the development of these countries in the Middle East. In fact, the US involvement and support of Saudi Arabia has led to one of the greatest humanitarian crises in the world right now. This is currently occurring in Yemen, wherein the US has supported Saudi Arabia in a war against the Houthi movement for over two and a half years. Despite U.S. involvement recently, it's important to look at where this conflict originated. If you look at Yemeni politics, it's a lot more intricate and complex. Both of them are essentially very morally gray. This actually stems from a lot of religious conflict in that there is a huge divide between Shia Muslims and Sunni Muslims, two different factions of Islam. Now we have Houthis, who are Zaydi Shia or Shia Muslims, and they're essentially a minority of the Shia Muslims. They concentrated themselves in North Yemen and have essentially fought for control over Yemen with the other groups that existed within the country. The Zaydi, while being in the minority of the country, were the majority in that area. Later on, they fought both the Ottomans and the Wahhabis, which are both nations who were part of the Sunni Islamism in the 18th and 19th centuries. So when the Ottoman Empire actually collapsed in 1918, a Zaydi monarchy began to take power in North Yemen. And this kingdom fought and lost a border war with Saudi Arabia in the 1930s. Saudi Arabia being another region mostly made up of Sunni Muslims. So in this sort of conflict, they lost a significant amount of territory to the Saudi state. And since then, there's been a lot of conflict between Saudi Arabia and North Yemen. So later on in 1962, Egypt gets involved because as you guessed it, Egypt is another Sunni Muslim uh, region. They brought in a republic coup 
that overthrew the king of North Yemen and established an Arab nationalist government. With the assistance of the Soviet Union, now Russia, Egypt sent tens of thousands of troops that forced Zaidi royalists, or people who supported the monarchy, to flee to the Saudi Arabian border. The Saudi government supported the royalists in their endeavor to regain control of the country against Egypt because Saudi and Egypt kind of hated each other. So think of this entire conflict between Saudi and Egypt as proxy wars. So Yemen is just one sort of battleground. The war ended in a Republican victory when Saudi Arabia and Egypt resolved their regional conflicts in a war against Israel because proxy wars, we love them. And this essentially caused them to lose interest in the Yemen civil war. So in a way, it's kind of like the US and the Soviet Union uh, back in the Cold War were fighting over Korea by proxy. And then they lost interest in Korea so they moved to Vietnam. And the same thing happened when Saudi Arabia and Egypt were fighting in Yemen, but then moved on to Israel. And then in 1978, they brought in a Zaidi Republican general, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who came to power and ruled Yemen for 33 years. He essentially was able to unite North and South Yemen in a bunch of other wars, such as the Kuwait War in 1991. So while this might seem great, a lot of people claim that his administration was insanely corrupt. And one of the groups that specifically thought that he was corrupt were in fact the Houthis. So the Houthis essentially became a Zaidi resistance to Saleh and his corruption and went as far as to charge Saleh with an intention to steal Yemen's wealth for his own family and personal purposes. Just like a lot of the Arab dictators in Egypt and Syria. But then they also criticized Saudi Arabia and actually the US for siding with Saleh. And that's where the US came into play because since Saleh was specifically against Al Qaeda, the US was, of course, in support of him because of the war against terrorism. Even though his cooperation with Al Qaeda is perceived to be incomplete. So, man didn't even do his job, and yet the US was like, we support you. But then with the U.S. involvement and siding with Soleil, that did nothing other than further radicalize the Houthi movement against Soleil. Where in 2003, they actually adopted the slogan, God is great, death to the U.S., death to Israel, curse the Jews, and victory for Islam. Essentially, it's very much the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or the friend of my enemy is my enemy. Because the U.S. sided with Soleil, the Houthi movement now hates the U.S. In response to this, Soleil actually launched a series of military campaigns to destroy the Houthis. In 2004, Soleil's forces killed the leader of the Houthi movement. And he used the Yemeni army and air force to suppress any sort of rebellion that occurred in North Yemen. Saudi Arabia later joined with Soleil in their campaigns and endeavors. So even though originally Saudi Arabia was joining with Saleh, in 2011, Saleh was actually replaced by Hadi at the behest of Saudi Arabia, who are again majorly Sunni Muslims. And of course, the Houthis were extremely critical of Hadi, solely because he was a Sunni Muslim. In 2014, surprisingly, 
The Houthians and Soleil actually colluded with one another solely against Hadi. And since much of the army remained loyal to Soleil, both the Houthis and Soleil had a larger force in the country. And for the most part, the majority viewed Hadi as a Saudi stooge and saw Soleil as the main leader. I just like to say, if Hadi is a Saudi stooge, what is Soleil? Man switches his side based on what he sees to be beneficial to his power. He's literally a chameleon. <laughs> In 2015, Yemen's capital finally fell to the Houthi rebel forces, just as there was a transition of power in the capital of Saudi Arabia. Obviously, this is not a very good look for the new king. And then later on, the main port of Hodadaya also fell to Houthi forces. This port is especially important as it controls a lot of trade and therefore economic development of Yemen as a whole. So being able to control that would be able to essentially minimize the amount of economic power Hadi had over the country. Later on, they began to develop this sort of alliance with Iran and open direct civilian air traffic between the capital of Yemen and the capital of Iran. Why is Iran involved? Well, they also hate Saudi Arabia. So of course, knowing that, Iran immediately began to form an alliance with the Houthis. And Iran promised cheap oil for Yemen, and rumors of this sort of Iran and Houthi cooperation spread very quickly. As a result of this sort of alliance, the Saudis chose to go to war in support of Hadi and prevent the Houthi Saleh rebellion from consolidating control of the country. Their defense minister, now Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, took a public lead in promising victory for the Saudi-backed forces and formed a coalition with other traditional Saudi allies. What's even worse is that in 2017, Saleh switched his support again to support Saudi-backed forces against the Houthis, which eventually got him killed. Essentially, everything that's happening in this region is solely a religious conflict between Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims. In this case, since the Houthis, Zaydi Shias, are the minority, it's basically them against almost everyone else, mainly Saudi Arabia. At the same time, it served as a battleground for many proxy wars to take place. I mean, Iran is, of course, Shia Muslim, and that's why they sided with Yemen, as well as the fact that they hate Saudi Arabia, which is another religious conflict. But Saudi Arabia and Egypt also use this, both of them are Sunni Muslim, I believe, and both of them kind of use this as a ground for proxy war and consolidating control and establishing dominance in the Middle East. So obviously, Yemen over the past few decades has been home to constant conflict and wars. So you can imagine life for innocent civilians is never peaceful. So now, currently, because of all the conflict that's happened over the past couple decades, Yemen is currently facing one of the biggest humanitarian crises in the world. And 
the reason for most of that has been unlawful war, not only from Saudi Arabia, but also from the Houthis. So the Human Rights Watch has actually documented at least 90 unlawful Saudi-led coalition airstrikes that seem to be deliberate attacks on civilians. And with all of these airstrikes adding up altogether, that's an average of 12 attacks per day taking place. Not to mention, they've also purposefully bombed hospitals, school buses, markets, mosques, farms, bridges, factories, and detention centers, all of which are essential for civilian life to even take place. So not only are the Saudi coalition essentially hurting people in warfare, they are crippling any sort of development from taking place in the first place. I think it's important to take into account, though, that Houthi forces aren't completely innocent either. Now, the Houthis have repeatedly fired into Yemeni cities, as well as launching indiscriminate ballistic missiles into Saudi Arabia. And all of these actions taking place might amount to charges of war crimes. Not to mention that the Houthis have also played landmines, have also placed landmines all across Yemen, which harm innocent civilians and their ability to go on with their daily lives, once again impeding, impeding any development from taking place. Also, both sides, the Houthis versus the government, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and their coalition, both of them have arbitrarily detained people, including children, abused detainees, and held them in poor conditions. They've also abducted people and that seemed like political opponents or security threats, and they just kind of disappear. Now, as a result of all of this conflict, it's led to a lot of starvation and disease in Yemen. Now, more than 20 million Yemen citizens are struggling with food insecurity, and nearly half of those are on the brink of famine. Even before COVID ever happened, diseases like cholera were rampant, reaching about 700,000 cases in 2019 alone. The war has displaced nearly 3 million people, more than 1 million of whom are internally displaced. With the spread of COVID, the crisis has only gotten worse, as there is a short supply of sanitation and clean water. In fact, their healthcare facilities aren't, most of them don't even function as well. Those that do often lack basic equipment such as masks and gloves, as well as oxygen and other essential supplies needed to treat the virus. A lot of healthcare workers are receiving little to no salary or incentive. And about 10.2 million children don't have access to healthcare. Especially with children, a lot of those who are killed or maimed in the conflict, many of them are more vulnerable as the damage and closure of schools as a result of COVID has disrupted their access to education and healthcare, which are essential in any developing country. Even without COVID, about 2 million children were out of school and now that has become to about 7.8 million children. With the background of the humanitarian crisis, as COVID spreads across Yemen, tens of thousands of children will experience life-threatening, severe acute malnutrition, 
within the period of six months. The overall number of malnourished kids under the age of five could grow to 2.4 million. So clearly, all of this sort of conflict has contributed to not only threats to development and well-being, but it cripples and stunts the growth of the country as a whole. And I think the important distinguishing factor here is that despite the conflict itself happening between Houthi, um, between Houthi resistance groups and the Saudi Arabian government for the most part, the people who are being harmed the most are actually innocent civilians who aren't taking place in the conflict whatsoever. This actually reminds me of a book that I strongly despised in my freshman English class, but it's actually called The Lord of the Flies, wherein these boys are stranded on an island. From that, they essentially try to rebuild society. Two leaders emerge. There is one who is Jack and the other who is Ralph. While Ralph was somewhat democratically elected, and he appears to be the more level-headed leader, Jack is power-hungry. He essentially creates this non-existent threat of a monster, the Beast, that causes everyone else to follow him, and that essentially isolates Ralph from society. And the boys essentially resort to savagery, rather than being able to rebuild society, in that the most innocent character, who realizes that the beast is not a real threat, is harmed in this act of savagery. Essentially, this grab for power is not necessarily just about power. This started as a conflict between religions regarding what kind of society they wanted to live in, what kind of government would function around that sort of society. Because both of them had different views, the country essentially fell apart, and those who are harmed are the most innocent ones, who had nothing to do with this in the first place. Not to mention that in The Lord of the Flies, much of the boys' attention turns toward this conflict between Jack's group and Ralph's group. And while in the beginning their main goal was trying to get off the island, trying to get help, trying to contact the outside world, this conflict becomes so all-consuming that there's no development being taken place. There are no steps being taken place to get off the island, which was their primary goal. Similar to how because of this conflict, this religious conflict in Yemen, the country isn't being able to experience any sort of development. And they're not being able to achieve any goals of a country. Rather, they're so consumed by this conflict that they're struggling to survive at all. So, we started this episode by talking about the U.S.'s complacency in this whole humanitarian crisis. So, I guess it's important to discuss that within this episode. Now, the Obama administration actually sided with Saudi Arabia, and this has sort of been an informal alliance that has been going on for the past 70 years. But this is really important, because US and UK support is essential 
for the Royal Saudi Air Force, and it enables the government to drop American and British ammunition on Yemen, and it's been doing so ever since. Arms sales from Western countries, specifically the France, UK, and US to Saudi Arabia, make the humanitarian crisis even worse. However, in 2019, the UK agreed to suspend the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia after their court of appeal found that the government taking any sort of part or involvement in these war crimes would lead to their own implication in war crimes. The US faces a similar argument, and despite multiple congressional efforts to end arms sales to Saudi Arabia, President Donald Trump, he used his veto power to block any sort of effort and continue to support Saudi Arabia, the biggest buyer of American weapons. Now, in the grand scheme of things, this isn't all that surprising, considering how much we've excused Saudi Arabia's actions, regardless of the severity or the intent behind them. One of the biggest examples of this was the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, who was a journalist and a prominent critic of MBS's policies in 2018. Now, the CIA concluded that Saudi Prince MBS ordered the assassination to take place, and apparently a team of 15 Saudi agents flew to Istanbul and killed Khashoggi inside the Saudi consulate. Furthermore, there was a phone call between Khalid bin Salman, MBS's brother, and Saudi ambassador to US, and Khashoggi, wherein he told Khashoggi to retrieve the certain important documents and assured him that it would be safe to do so, when obviously it wasn't. Now, this isn't a partisan thing either. Even though at the time we practiced this policy of appeasement and letting Saudi get away with whatever they wanted because they sold us oil, we're still continuing that with a new administration. Take for example, the recent lack of condemnation. In fact, even though the US has now gotten confirmation, official confirmation, that this has occurred, President Biden refused to penalize MBS for killing Jamal Khashoggi for fearing that there would be a breach in relationships. And not to mention that since then, he's been continuing to defend this decision, stating that it would have been diplomatically unprecedented for the US to act against MBS despite there being no official alliance between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. And this policy of appeasement never works. I mean, take into the consideration this policy of appeasement in World War II. I mean, a lot of the world powers just kept on letting Hitler get away with whatever he wanted. And eventually, he was able to invade countries such as Poland and do human genocide. Even with the Yemen crisis, MBS, now that he knows that nothing is going to come out of his actions, is encouraged to keep doing them. I read this bizarre story wherein the UN received nearly $1 billion from Saudi Arabia for the humanitarian response to the Yemen crisis. You know what's free? Not bombing Yemen. I mean, despite, like, giving all this money to the UN to try to help this humanitarian crisis, no amount of money is going to be able to solve it if 
Saudi Arabia can, and the Houthis continue to have this sort of conflict, which is basically impeding most of the humanitarian efforts from actually making a difference to begin with. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure to add it to any playlist you might have. Rate us on if you're on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, like, and comment on our YouTube because we also have additional content such as short films and documentaries and interviews coming up. So you don't want to miss that. If you want to continue this conversation and talk to us on a different platform, Make sure to follow us on Instagram, which is just at Positionality Media. You can also contact us at our email, which is positionalitymedia at gmail.com. Or you can even leave us a listener message on Anchor. Other than that, we'll see you guys next time.